Hello and welcome to the History of Christian Theology. My name's Chad Kim. With me, with me this week will be Dr. Tyler Whitman. Uh, Dr. Whitman published his uh, dissertation under the title God and Creation and the Theology of Thomas Aquinas and Karl Barth with Cambridge University Press in 2018. Um, we talk a little bit about that work and a little bit about theology broadly and his understanding of theology. Uh, it's a very delightful conversation where Dr. Whitman gives um, some thoughts on what actually is the task of theology, how does it relate to uh, biblical studies and some of the other um, sort of um, disciplines within, say, like a seminary faculty, um, and so we, we enjoy, I really enjoyed that conversation with him. Um, he, he also uh, gave a little bit of um, background about his own life, including uh, how he ended up at his undergrad, which was uh, an amusing story, um, and so I really appreciated having on uh, Dr. Whitman. Um, also, I uh, have often asked for questions uh, from listeners, things that they would like me to talk further about, um, and I'd like to mention one from Sarah Kortz. Um, she asked me on uh, Facebook, she asked me about uh, the, the issue of polygamy in the Old Testament and whether or not early Christian theologians handled this um, sort of a dilemma um, as, as you know, modern Christians don't, um, especially in the West, don't believe in polygamy. Um, and uh, so how, how is it that that is so common in the Old Testament and do people comment on it um, in, in early Christian theology, which is what we focus on? So I uh, responded that Augustine does mention it in book three of the Confessions, um, and he says that it is problematic and wrong, but he attributes it uh, to sort of just a cultural um, understanding in the early church, uh, or in, excuse me, in um, in the Old Testament, uh, but says that it is, of course, not the practice that God would would want uh, for for all of His followers for all time. Um, so. Uh, if you're interested um, in reading more about that, I would definitely send you to Confessions Book 3. Um, but uh, I appreciate the question from Sarah. So if you do have other questions, please do uh, feel free to send them my way on Facebook or on Twitter. Um, and if you uh, also would take the time to rate and review us on iTunes, we would appreciate it. And we also have a Patreon account um, if you feel so inclined. So um, thank you to Sarah and thank you to Dr. Whitman, of course. Um, for his uh, for taking some time out of his day to talk with us, um, we got some podcasts coming up. We've been working some stuff out with Michael McClymond uh, on universalism and Hans Bersma on seeing God. Um, and uh, as you may have seen on our Twitter feed, uh, my friend uh, Daniel Hauk uh, wrote a book on original sin and Aquinas, and we will be tackling all of those um, in the coming months. Um, so please do uh, pay attention on our and follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and you can see when those conversations will be coming out on the podcast. Um, sorry for the super long introduction, uh, but I appreciate you listening. Without any further ado, uh, my conversation with Tyler Whitman. Yeah, so um, this week uh, on the podcast, uh, we have um, Dr. Tyler Whitman. Uh, Tyler Whitman is a professor at uh, New Orleans Baptist Seminary now. He was at Southern Baptist Seminary, and I don't know what your title is at New Orleans. You do sy systematics, but is that assistant professor yeah. of systematic theology? Just assistant professor of, um, I think it's of theology. I mean, I, I've only been here about six months. I, I'm not really, <laughs> not really sure my title. I think, I think that's it, though. 
Okay. And uh, just uh, this is one of these things that I've been trying to work out in my own mind. Would I mean, like when you think of yourself, do you think of yourself as a dogmatician, as a systematician, as both, as just a theologian? How do you how do you work through uh, these kind of categories? Oh, man, I just find I see myself as somebody who's just trying to learn uh, my faith. I, um, you know, sometimes I that that takes on more of a uh, I guess if you're making a distinction between systematic theology uh, and then dogmatic theology, you know, sometimes it has more of a dogmatic flavor. Sometimes it's more of a systematic flavor. Although it depend on how you parse those. Sometimes it's just a historical theologian. You know, uh, sometimes it's just like a exegetical, you know, I, I sometimes joke with friends that I'm a systematic theologian with, you know, secret aspirations to be a, a biblical scholar, um, like an, a, a new, an Old Testament scholar, you know, maybe, or a, a New Testament scholar. <laughs> I don't know. It, it just um, so systematics works well because you get to kind of, you know, dip around in everything, you know, and, and have a little bit of it all. So. Yeah, yeah. well, I was just. And as I asked that question, I was reminded of uh, a passage that I was just looking at, uh, wanting to um, sort of talk with you about, but you kind of give a little bit of your um, understanding of theology, I guess you could say. Uh, this is page nine in your book, but theology is marked by its religious responsibility to God as an act of worshipful gratitude. Um, given divine teaching, mm -hmm. what follows theology is not divinely inspired teaching, but rather uh, hearing, receptivity, confession of that which was been given once for all. Um, so I, I guess in some ways, uh, it seems to me that's kind of how you understand the task of theology, whether or not it's called dogmatic, systematics, or whatever. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, theology is uh, first and foremost a, um, a mode of our, yeah, religious kind of relation to God, right? Um, so it's inseparable, I think, from the virtue of religion and from, uh, you know, a lived faith. Um, you know, I, I, I get this from, obviously, you know, started with reading guys like Calvin and, and Aquinas and John Owen. But the, it's really been impressed upon me more and more as I've read people like Gregory Nazianzus um, and uh, even some Lutheran scholastics. You know that the old habitus of theology, as it were, you know that's kind of a, or theology in the subject, as some of the uh, translations put it. You know that, that kind of um, I I I really have been leaning into that more and more. That theology is uh, inseparable from the regenerate life. It's a it's a regenerate science, I believe. So, um, so yeah, it's not just a head game. It's a um, it's a it's a way of life. You know, to uh, to allude to. Pierre Hadot. So yeah, um, it's very comprehensive. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And I like that you uh, bring together sort of your interests in uh, exegesis and biblical studies. Um, and I mean, this will uh, probably be something of a, a theme throughout. Um, and, and it has actually kind of been a, um, uh, how do we say, how can I say it? Like sort of like an ongoing theme in the podcast has been my own sort of like coming to terms with ways in which that I was raised as a Southern Baptist, but like where everything was focused on say biblical studies and there wasn't mm. much attention to theology. Um, and so it sounds like, you know, you, you have a, 
you know, still have some of that in, in your DNA as do I. So, I mean, you know, sometimes when I'm applying for jobs and stuff, people will say, oh, well, we want a biblical studies person. I was like, I read Latin and Greek and I reflect on how people have understood the scriptures. I, pr I pretty much take that to be the task of theology, you know, and biblical studies. You know, why is this not, does this not work? Um, but I guess it's because I don't have a PhD in New Testament or Old Testament. Yes, there's kind of a, there's kind of a pecking order, right? In, um, Definitely in, in Southern Baptist circles, but really I'm just kind of like, uh, I think evangelical, it's a, I hate that word nowadays, but that, that kind of like, um, you know what I mean? Um, the kind of like um, Western Protestant kind of uh, higher education as a whole, you know, if, if they have a religion department or a theology department, it, it typically is like a, you know, Bible and ethics kind of uh, department, you know, um, or or um, God help us worldview or something like that, you know, <laughs> <politics. laughs> uh, I, I kind of joke around that, uh, with friends sometimes that, that, um, theology is the, is the scientia non grata, you know, um, <laughs> there you go. it's the, uh, yeah, it's the kind of like, um, it's the unwanted, you know, kind of guest in the room. Sometimes people don't understand that to be a good reader of scripture, to be a good apologist, to be a good, uh, ethicist, you have to first be um, sufficiently catechized. You should know your faith um, to, in order for the faith to be extended to, um, you know, its sources, even, you know, in scripture or to its uh, its extension into moral reasoning or something. So anyway, that's I'm starting to sound like I'm on a soapbox. <laughs> well, that's hey, that's what podcasts are for. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's just a bunch of people, usually men with beards and glasses, uh, up on their soapboxes. Uh-oh. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I heard a joke the other day. It was like, what do you call a group of uh, three white men with beards and glasses? A podcast? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That's right. Uh, and yeah. uh, it, it, it would mostly be true. Um, one of my uh, – the other guys who's usually – who's part of the team that I started this podcast with, um, his he, he has a, um, some Hispanic – background um so we don't we actually we're a little more diverse than the average podcast um <laughs> but uh but not really um yeah so anyway uh yeah well no this is uh this is interesting i mean part of what um some of my questions even as i was reading your work um have gone to um I guess a little bit, even the posture uh, we could say of theology. And so you know, you've been talking about the um, how theology has taken a bit of a backseat in contemporary sort of uh, Baptist and maybe evangelical in scare quotes worlds. I wonder if that's might, might not even be a good place for theology. I mean, I wrote my dissertation on Augustine and humility and, and uh, what it means to preach mm -hmm. humbly. And we even had Dr. Uh, Matthew Wilcoxon on to talk about, um, divine humility. Uh, so I, I do wonder if maybe this, one, maybe this is even a good way uh, to think about theology, like in terms of like, how does it fit in the order of, um, you know, uh, universities that it's, that it might have to not take itself uh, for granted or assume its own uh, worth or something that, that it actually has to be a little bit more humble in its posture. And maybe it's good for people who study theology to have to, to think that way. Yeah, I think that um, there's there's a kind of benefit to being on your heels a little bit, right? That um, kind of keeps you honest and um, and critically self reflective. 
about what you're what you're doing and why you're doing and, and why what you're doing is necessary and important. Um, uh, and and then that kind of underdog kind of uh, scrappy mentality can I think be pretty good. I mean, it can also like anything lead to certain vices and so forth um, when it comes to intellectual inquiry. But um, you know, you you mentioned uh, humility. I think we have to be careful with that. This is I mean. Obviously, this is just my point of view, man, you know, uh, but um, <laughs> or my opinion, man, like, as, as the dude says. But uh, it's, you know, that, that that rhetoric of humility has kind of gotten really um, pronounced in those kind of like John Templeton Foundation kind of circles. And what it usually means is they mean for theologians to kind of be quiet and take their cues from analytic philosophers of religion and um, scientists who typically uh, um, have a very tenuous uh, understanding of the faith, um, if they're even Christians, you know. So um, that kind of humility is, is I think, a kind of a false form of humility. I mean, a true humility is, a, um, is again, a, a virtue that is defined first and foremost by our relation to God not our relation to other disciplines or something like that. Right. Mm. Um, so uh, when I'm looking for uh, humility as a defining feature of theology, I'm thinking of someone who understands their place uh, in the presence of God as my uh, former, you know, my supervisor, the late John Webster would, would always say, we can't talk about God behind his back. You know, it, it kind of embodies a sense of that. Augustine has a really keen sense of this, obviously. Um, so, um, you know, a, a sense that we have to, like the quote you read, you know, from the book, have to receive divine teaching, that we are answerable to divine teaching. This is not something we kind of make up or um, that's really in our, um, on our shoulders, you know, um, the faith doesn't kind of rest on our shoulders. Uh, the kingdom, you know, uh, is not kind of a, a project, you know, um, at our disposal. Um you know, th th that kind of humility, I think, is is good for theology. And that kind of humility certainly can have institutional, um, a certain kind of institutional embodiment and so forth. I'm not an expert on that by any means. But I just want to be clear that when, you know, <laughs> nowadays it seems like, you know, that it gets bandied about quite a bit. And what people mean by it isn't always, I think, what the tradition has meant by uh, humility as a virtue, especially in with regards to theology. Yeah, I think that's fair. And and certainly Dr. Wilcoxon, uh, he actually drew a connection between um, Aquinas's understanding of magnanimity um, and, mm -hmm. and, and actually talked about humility as a form of magnanimity in a way of, of, be, of using your, uh, your sort of something about you for the benefit of others. Um, and yeah. so there was a way, a way that he understood humility in Christ. And he was trying to locate this humility um, uh, sort of um, in the theology, in the um, um, in in um, the Trinity uh, ad intra, I guess, um, and and so he was trying to understand how you know Bart and Sondrager and others uh, could talk about humility within God without it being um, subordinationism. Uh, to get really mm -hmm. technical, uh, which I know you understand, but for my listeners, I know that that gets kind of deep uh, in the weeds. But needless to say, what he was trying to show was that humility in the in the sense that you're talking about doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have a backbone. Um, or it doesn't mean that you don't uh, understand the place 
place of your own uh, work or even confidence in uh, what you um, what you teach, what you uh, what you know. It's it's actually just um, it may be sort of a posture and it may be a way of being for others um, in in that way as Christ was for us. Absolutely, I, I haven't read. Um... Will Coxon's book. I've, I actually bought it a few months back and sitting on my to read uh, shelf here next to my desk, but um, he would know better about these matters than I would. I wrote a small piece on humility. It's, it's not the most elegant piece, um, but it's, it's out in, I think the um, society of a Christian ethics journal, but uh, it, um, you know, while researching it, I found, you know, obviously the Protestant tradition, a lot of them have a, 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 an issue with magnanimity as a virtue um, and, uh, and yet I think it, it actually coheres with what they want to say about humility because the kind of, um, magnanimity to which humility properly aspires is the service of others. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the course of that research for that, that piece, I, I ran across this really fascinating, um, uh, bit by John Wycliffe. I haven't really read any of uh, Wycliffe before Wycliffe, Wycliffe, whatever. Um, uh, you know, the, the Wycliffe boys are, 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 are all, you know, typing their angry responses now to my mispronunciation. Um, Wycliffe has this great thing where he's, you know, talks about how Jesus, you know, uh, models humility for us because he's, um, he's the, the swiftest in the service of God and, uh, and other men, you know? And, um, so I, I, that, that's kind of where I, where I came down. Uh, on one element in terms of how I define humility. So yeah, certainly theology is a form of uh, service um, that takes it back to love of God and love of neighbor. And that seems to be pretty important and good and true. So yeah. Indeed. Well, one of the questions that that I actually wrote you. So so far we've we're fifteen minutes in. I don't think I've actually uh, followed my guide, but uh, but this is what makes podcasts fun. Uh, um, Well, and related to this posture, you talked about Webster saying that theology can't be done behind God's back. And one of the things that I was struck by in your book is you begin with some. Uh, a quote from Anselm from the Proslogion, and then you mm. uh, use a little bit of that in the beginning with Bart. And I was just struck by the fact that the Proslogion is, among other things, a prayer. Um, and so uh, mm. Anselm writes in a few different ways, um, sort of dialogues and maybe more like treatises. But this one, at least, was a was a prayer. Um, and I wonder, um, you know, what what role uh, does that sort of um, so like you, the the main point of your book that um, I mean, I guess in um, <laughs> in uh, uh, conceit, that's what this podcast is about, although we've kind of gone uh, far afield. Uh, but your book, God and Creation of the Theology of Thomas Aquinas and Karl Barth, um, you talk a little bit, you, you know, you're trying to get at what, um, how does one confess God as God? And I guess my question might be, did you ever consider uh, writing as a prayer or confession and prayer and the relation of prayer to this uh, this role of confessing? No, um, because if I had, I'm sure my supervisor would have uh, slapped me, right? Um, <laughs> he wouldn't have. He would have just like nodded and been like, no, that's a bad idea. You know, like, <laughs> um, no, I, I, I think that, uh, I mean, obviously not in terms of like uh, writing it as a prayer, because this is a rev- uh, slightly revised doctoral thesis. Obviously, that's just not what you do there. But um, yeah, in terms of like the role of prayer in this kind of, um, in the kind of undertaking, right? 
it's an ascetic undertaking, a contemplative undertaking. Well, prayer, if, I mean, if, you're, if prayer doesn't figure into your theological method, so to speak, then you're doing it wrong. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, it doesn't show, I don't, I don't write a prayer. I don't write in the form of a prayer or anything like that. But prayer does show up in the course of the way I do theology. Um, you know, um, like the book, I'm, I'm currently writing a book with a friend um, on, uh, it's, 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 I think, tentatively titled Biblical Reasoning. Um, which is obviously a phrase from, from Webster, from John Webster. But, uh, you know, in the course of writing that book, we're really um, engaging a lot with the biblical text and trying to um, kind of show how the uh, traditional uh, rules, for example, reading um, of, of rules that get you to the kind of Nicene and Chalcedonian conclusions, right? Uh, how they emerge from scripture. So stuff like partitive exegesis, stuff, the distinction between Christ's two natures, um, you know, um, things like the distinction between the divine processions and missions and the order between the persons and, um, and so forth. Well, you know, as, as we're kind of working through these things, you know, I'm, um, I found myself several times puzzling over what this passage in scripture means or how to, um, you know, what the spiritual significance of some of these conclusions are. And oftentimes when I find myself the most frustrated, it's when I have, um, I mean, I'm going to sound really pietistic now, but just haven't been praying about it. And I'll, and that's what I'll do. I'll go back to ground zero and I'll just be like, okay, God, like, you know, look, if I write a book and it's just my thoughts about stuff, it's going to be crap. You know, I'm, I'm, and, and even then, if I write something and it's not just my thoughts, it's not going to be that good. Um, I, I don't have that high of an estimation of myself, but I, I want whatever I say to be true and to be worthwhile. I want it to be a fruit of contemplation. So I think a lot of times that's just really where it starts with me is just um, praying, asking for the Spirit's illumination, especially when I'm reading scripture, um, not to reduce it to just what I can kind of, um, you know, garner from the biblical text to write some impressive bit of theology or something, but so that I can actually learn so that this can mold me in some way, uh, into greater conformity with Christ. Um, so that stuff actually has come as again, has, has come out more and more has impressed itself upon me as just that much more essential. The more I've read people like Thomas Aquinas, Gregory Nazianzus, um, Augustine, um, you know, yeah, because for those guys, that that process of of being transformed, right, um, into the image of the Trinity is is what growth as a theologian looks like, and that's what actually gives you anything worth passing on to others. Um, you know, so you can only pass on what you've received, and so basically, that's just it's an open hand prayer is to to that the Lord would give you something to pass on to others. Um, so, I mean, and that ties into humility. So that's where prayer, I think, comes in for me. And I just think you see it embodied well in people like Augustine or Anselm. Um, so that's the I guess. Yeah, no, that's great. And I realized my, my question was a bit overly simplistic. Um, and no, no, and, no. and I, I realize, of course, that for academic theology, you can't write a prayer, but it just, it just strikes me that, um, you know, like in one sense, we're talking about uh, it, your books talking about confessing God as God, which is something that one does uh, to other Christians, um, or at least in the presence of other Christians. Um, and one of the things that always strikes me, like when I first encountered Anselm's 
uh, argument, uh, the ontological argument, uh, was as an undergrad at Oklahoma Baptist University, but it was in a philosophy department. Um, and we were trying to figure out whether or not it was a adequate uh, argument. Did it prove um, the existence of God? Um, and, and, you know, and then did we find that persuasive or not? And that was that was it. That was where the analysis was. And I, I loved my philosophy department, by the way, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and really enjoyed it. But, you know, it just it, like later when I went back to reread it in a theology department, um, my uh, my medieval theology professor says, hey, let's let's you know, let's take account for the fact that this begins as prayer um, rather yeah. than as just a argument um, for uh, for 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 the existence of God. That's exactly right. Yeah, there's there's, there's a there's a. It, it transforms it from a kind of reasoned appeal to, you know, some kind of um, agnostic or atheist who's just kind of weighing, um, you know, naked reason in the balance or something, you know, it, it moves it away from that kind of an argument to, um, to a kind of pedagogical um, piece, you know, like there's a certain kind of, uh, pedagogy that happens, I think, in these arguments for the existence of God, like you see in Anselm and uh, and even in Aquinas's um, five ways. And I think it's a shame that we've often reduced these things to like what you're talking about, like these kind of rationalist proofs for the existence of God, rather than um, things that are themselves presupposing faith and that have a, a kind of shaping a formative function um, for for the church. Yeah. Not to say they don't have to do the skeptic or whatever, but it's to say that's not their primary purpose. Right. Well, it strikes me that the same uh, professor that I was thinking of, uh, Tomas O'Sullivan, he also said that the thing that uh, every Catholic will read from Thomas Aquinas isn't his Summa Theologica or uh, Summa Contra Gentilis, but his prayer after mass. Um, and hmm. like, there are certain things that Aquinas wrote that are actually way more um, uh, read and known by Catholics uh, than maybe even his great works and their prayers, uh, which is important to to remember uh, for for any of these theologians that we're reading, at least the you know um, the, the the fathers of the church. That's right. Yeah, or doctors of the church, I guess, is for Aquinas. But doctors, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> Got to get my titles right. I had to learn all of these. Uh, <laughs> and, and actually, it's, it strikes me another funny thing about being a, a, a kid raised Baptist doing his PhD with a, a Jesuit priest. Um, when I, you know, you were talking about things that you learned from from your doctoral advisor or doctor father. Um, when 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 I went bef uh, to Father Maconi with my proposal um, for what I wanted to write about, he asked me if I had prayed about it. Um, and, huh. and I, I just remember being like, kind of surprised, actually. Um, I was like, this is an academic argument about the preaching of Augustine. What, you know, <laughs> um, wow. and, 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 you know, sort of made, put, put me on my back foot a little bit in a good way of like, you know, what, what are we doing this for? That's cool. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Man. Yeah. That's and, uh, well, and you know, I mean, I yeah, uh, I don't need to go into all the ins and outs of my time um, at at SLU, but that was, you know, uh, that helped me realize. And Father McConey was also very encouraging the whole time, and I don't think I would have finished without um, his encouragement. So um, it was definitely a uh, blessing to have him uh, help work with me, which I'm sure is the same for you uh, with uh, the with John Webster. Absolutely. 
yeah, yeah. Working with John Webster was um, the reason we went overseas. You know, when I um, was looking at doing PhD programs, I kind of, uh, I just, I, I basically only applied to three programs because I identified three people I wanted to study with. Um, and so that's like the exact opposite of the advice you get. You know, you get all this advice of like, you're coming up with different tiers of programs and applying to all these. I just applied to three programs and I got into all of them um thankfully and um but you know it was meeting with john webster i had the opportunity to, to sit down with him before making the decision and just spending an hour just chatting with him and he was just blowing my mind with the kind of questions he was asking me i just realized i need to spend time with this guy um <laughs> i need to learn from this guy uh because you just realize how dumb you are you know in those moments that's a, a bad way of putting it but how much you have to learn you know and and how um how much someone has to, uh, to give you. So, uh, and, and John was great at that. He was very, he could have been much more prolific, I think, in terms of his writing output and so forth, if he weren't so busy, um, investing in, um, in, in institutions and in uh, primarily in, in his students, you know? Um, so he really embodied that, um, principle that Aquinas articulates that it's better to pass on, you know, um, the fruits of contemplation than to contemplate itself. Um, mm. So, yeah, and I think any of John's students would testify to that. And it's just, a, it's like one of the first things you recognize about the man. So, yeah, 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 we, we definitely. Well, very good. Yeah. So just taking a little bit, um, going back to your book, um, you yeah. know, one of the, th like in your uh, first chapter there, you talk about uh, Romans 1 kind of sets the stage mm. for what you're about to do. Um, so uh, just a general question, what is at stake uh, in the confession of God as God? Why is that um, something worth considering, something worth analyzing, something worth going after, and, you know, maybe even potential perils uh, for, for um, you know, getting this wrong? Yeah, you know, when I came up, when it came time to kind of um, re-work uh, it just a little bit for publication, the, um, you know, I, I added the whole bit about Romans 1 and stuff into it um, mm. because I felt like what's at stake with confessing God as God, right? Um, not merely as my benefactor, not merely as my savior, not to say that those aren't tremendously world and altering kind of, um, you know, ways of confessing God, right? But um, to confess God just in terms of his godness, just in terms of uh, his own intrinsic self-worth, right? And not um, for what he's done for me. Um, to, 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 to gather that insight, I feel like is pretty important for, um, for avoiding idolatry. So it's just, it's, it's one moment of theological inquiry. It's not where it ends, right? And, uh, and it may not even be where it begins, but it's, but it's a moment in the course of one's uh, contemplation of God. One has to recognize that God is in and for himself, right? Um, and only on that basis is he, um, is he for us and for our salvation, you know? Uh, so I found that in the, uh, you know, confessing God is kind of a, 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 uh, a title of one of Webster's books. So the, 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 the phrase confessing God as God is also a kind of, um, homage to, uh, to Webster who passed away two weeks before I basically was done with the dissertation. Mm. Um, 
And so, um, but the, the, the idea of confessing God as God, I felt like just kind of uh, picks, um, picks up on Paul's language in Romans one. Right. Um, and I, I walk through this in the, uh, in the book, I'm opening up now to, to Romans so I can, um, so I can read this actual verse, but, uh, obviously Paul's argument in Romans one, very, um, very famous and well-known. It's, it's about the kind of descent into ungodliness that happens as a consequence of, um, um, as a consequence of idolatry. And, and there, like in verse 21, he says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were dark, darkened. Um, and so I just found that, that phrase interesting as God, like, what does that mean? You know? And, um, and so I try to show in that little brief kind of exeget exegetical um, kind of uh, foyer, right, to the to the to the argument that um, what this is bound, what he means by that, uh, they did not honor God as God, uh, is kind of borne out in the kind in, in in the if I can remember the argument correctly, borne out in the in 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 the kinds of things he goes on to say these people did not avoid, right? When they're not avoiding idolatry, they are confusing the creator and the creature. They are confusing um, God's kind of glory with, you know, things that they see. Um, and um, so God gives them up to these debased minds and so forth and so on. Um, so I, I, I try to show, and I, I think I do so, I, I stand by the exegesis, um, that what, what this means is that it, it's just the, the recognition that God is um, not a creature, right? Um, that he is, um, he's qualitatively distinct from all things. Um, I'm not trying to say Paul has in mind, like, all everything that I'm saying, but I'm saying that the, the what do I want to say, the, 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 the movement, right, of Paul's argument, mm -hmm. um, it, it's definitely moving in, that, in, in the same direction of the kind of things that I'm wanting to say. Um, so that's what's at stake there is that we um, is that we distinguish God, right? So that we can actually see God more clearly, right? Uh, we, we distinguish God from um, what is not God. So anyway, that and, and then I get into Anselm and stuff, and I kind of start to complexify that and, and and add some nuance to it. But that's that's where that's the nugget of where it starts. Yeah. Well, it, it struck me. What's that? And so it just has to do it has to do with idolatry. Is the yeah, 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 very good. Oh, and as you were talking, you said, I'm not sure that Paul has that in mind, um, exactly. And it struck me that, um, this is actually kind of a, a recurrent conversation I have with a friend of mine, um, who's a pastor. We both went to seminary together, um, but he, um, as I read the church fathers, I became less and less uh, concerned. Not, you know, not that it was unimportant to ask what Paul had in mind, but maybe that's not the only question to have. Um, and oh, and uh, and he, he and I both really like reading Rowan Williams. And I think it's in his Holy Living book. He talks a little bit about he almost uses a phrase. Uh, it's similar to what you just said, but is it in the direction of the of the of the thought or something mm -hmm. like he you know, he sort of says uh, setting up like what you are trying to look for in the text. You're not trying to go against sort of the, the flow or the um, arrangement. Um, you are working with it, not against it. 
Um, and, and so it was, it was sort of a way to, I don't know, you could say put up some guardrails. So, I mean, you know, cause obviously we're terrified of being origins or something, um, <laughs> and going too far with our fanciful philosophizing and allegorizing. Um, but, uh, no, but it, it's just, it, what Rowan Williams has a helpful way of sort of like working with the direction and grain of the text. Yeah. Something like that. Um, I haven't read enough Williams to, you know, that's not where I'm. Uh, obviously getting it but something like that is kind yeah. of um yeah what i'm what i would be more concerned with you know i mean yes i you know there's a lot of pushback against kind of modernist hermeneutics and so forth and um nowadays um and i'm kind of of the yes <laughs> but kind of crowd you know like i am all for recovering patristic modes of exegesis and some some of the medieval stuff i think a lot of that is actually more consistent with the uh reformation's understanding of divine inspiration mm -hmm. uh, i think richard richard moeller uh, points some of this out in his post-reformation reform dogmatics um volume two i think but uh but at the same time i think there are some gains um that, that we've had um in kind of um grammatical historical exegesis and so um you know, I just want to make sure that uh, we're not throwing the you know baby out with the bathwater. So, yeah, I'm interested in knowing what Paul thought and so forth. You know, it, it becomes an issue when people are like, now, you know, here's what Paul thought. And now that I've really constructed the, you know, psychology of the Apostle Paul and everything he's concerned about, you can see how he's clearly at odds with, you know, whomever wrote, you know, the Gospel of Mark. And, you know, <laughs> and, and you get into these people who are just really way too sure of them, of their own reconstruct, speculative reconstructions of what these you know, it was putatively going on in the mind of these individuals who wrote these things. And I don't know. At, at that point, you just start, you know, you, uh, uh, it's almost like a, it's the same problem with allegorizing, you know, it's just now they've, they've gone off into these, uh, it's a historicist kind of, you know, version of it, but, um, that's maybe not the right word to use for that, but yeah. So there's perils on every side, but I want to know, you know, the, the, the plain sense of the text is obviously the way the words run. Um, you know, yeah, it helps to know something about the first century context, um, second table Judaism, all that kind of stuff. That, that, that helps to know something about the plain sense. But, um, you know, at the same time, the Qumran documents are not part of canonical scripture. So um, I think that has to weigh in at some point, but I'm not going to go too far afield on hermeneutics here. <laughs> yeah, sure, fair enough. Uh, and just a couple, you know, uh, I'll, I, you guys, the, for my listeners, there's, um, I did an uh, episode with uh, Dr. Matthew Emerson, um, and he talked a little bit about the difference between historical grammatical and historical critical uh, forms of exegesis. So we did a little bit of, um, mm -hmm. you know, modern hermeneutics on in that episode, which, which I found enlightening since, um, since after undergrad, I hadn't really done any uh, education in Baptist um, and more evangelical circles. So I was not aware of that as being a distinction actually. Um, and, uh, but it was very helpful. So I, I recommend that podcast. Um, also another thing that Tyler just said triggered, uh, something I did learn, um, uh, along the way. Uh, and, and I found, uh, so I was doing a little bit of Hebrew with a, uh, a rabbinic professor, um, at, uh, um, the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York, and we talked about the Pashuto Mikara, uh, which is like looking for the the plain sense meaning of the text. Um, mm -hmm. And um, it was it was it was interesting uh, to hear this uh, this Jewish um, 
expert in well in medieval um rabbinic exegesis talk about similar things to what i grew up hearing about like okay what is a plain sense what is a straightforward um kind of sense of the text um and we were you know we were sort of um we had a sort of similar outlook, uh, but but had being raised in different areas, which I just thought was sort of funny. But I but I, I'll never forget that phrase. And now that I'm teaching Hebrew again, it, it's uh, I guess it's fresh in my mind. That is interesting. Yeah, I, I, you know, I was just reading some of that stuff yesterday. Some stuff by uh, I've been reading a bunch of Old Testament scholarship recently, and reading stuff. You know, there's a whole uh, subgenre, I guess, out there of like uh, historical reconstructions of like. Israelite religion and and I've been reading a lot about this kind of stuff and was reading you know a review of one of these massive monographs by a Jewish scholar who was just like um basically saying like yeah it's all right but like you know the conclusions here that monotheism aren't as important for you know Israelite religion as like previously thought it's a late development it goes against the plain sense of the text which I thought was a really interesting critique um you know, because it almost seems like the 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 goal of some of these things is to just kind of evacuate, um, evacuate the Old Testament of any kind of role, you know, in the life of the church. Like, um, you know, it's just layers upon layers of, of competing editorial traditions and uh, how anyone could make sense of it without, you know, uh, anyway, I won't get into it. I'm just going to stop there. But <laughs> very interesting and still relevant uh i think in 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 every field yeah well okay so one question that i've wanted to start uh introducing uh that uh well my my sister encouraged me to find 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 a question that makes your podcast like someone should listen to your podcast cuz they they might hear something different uh as you're interviewing different people mm. so oh. uh I, I came up with the i think i sent it to you but like what's one thing uh in your sort of um intellectual journey intellectual development what's one thing that you've changed your mind about uh like you thought was true but no longer do and and maybe what caused that change it, it doesn't it can be related to your book um it doesn't have to be but like what's like a big okay tyler changed his mind um about this um and and what, what was that uh tell us a little bit about that oh man um yeah i've been puzzling over this quite you know i mean i was asked talking to my wife about this i was like what is something i've changed my mind on um and to some degree it's a hard question to answer because i feel like i've changed my mind on so much and so it depends upon you know the timeline we're looking at here yeah <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, if we're just, if, if we're just restricting it to theology though, um, you know, I mean, um, yeah, there's been, there's been several things. I think that, um, you know, when I was in seminary, I, you know, I, I, I came to seminary. I grew up in a pastor's home. I, you know, I, I, I learned the gospel. I learned my Bible and so forth and so on, you know, but I didn't, um, I didn't know all the finer points of theology and stuff. I had never read a theology book, um, so um, I had a lot of questions um, that came kind of late. You know, I, I always also wasn't really always interested in some of these things. You know, like the one things that I was interested in, I looked up and I read about, but I wasn't always really interested in theology. And I became interested in it kind of late. And so when I went to seminary, that was really the beginning of my theological education, I feel like, um, where some people had come and they had already been, you know, studying stuff for years. So all that to say, when I got there, I started learning things for the first time. So I, I was taught a kind of subordinationist 
a functional mm. subordinationist view of the Trinity and that that relates to how men and women relate to one another and stuff. And, you know, and um, hearing it for the first time and never having heard differently. And I just was like, well, that sounds really um, interesting and compelling. And um, so I just kind of assumed that was the way the cookie crumbles. Um until until the end of seminary, you know, and uh, of course I was I was interested in learning about these kind of things and really interested in the doctrine of God. And so I just was reading a lot, started reading Augustine and started reading um, Owen and Turretin and just started recognizing like, wait a minute now, uh, this does not sound like um, the doctrine of the Trinity I was taught, right? And um and I just started noticing, like, no one in any of these texts ever relates it to how many women should relate to one another. So that's one thing I changed my mind on, obviously, just because I learned, I, you know, I was reading these older sources and looking how they read the Bible. And I felt like they made greater sense of, of Scripture and like they were more faithful to it. So that's one of the things I changed my mind on um, pretty, pretty quickly. Um, and... Um, and then in more recent years, um, <clears throat> I think it's been, you know, I've, I have, in terms of like theological ethics and so forth, I have come to have a far greater appreciation of the role of um, the virtue um, kind of tradition, mm. um, which, you know, I, I got hints of in seminary, but the approach that, you know, I had, I had really understood to be kind of normative for Christian ethics is really much more casuistic. Um, and so, you know, I think, I still think casuistry is, is important in some sense. I don't think it needs to be thrown out, but um, at the same time, I think that the, the, uh, you know, virtue and an account of the kind of moral life's anatomy and its grammar, that's part of, I think, what virtue and habits are, that kind of stuff is, has come much more to, at the forefront of my mind as being really, really important. Um, so yeah, those are some things that I've changed my mind up. Maybe they're not really <clears throat> juicy and salacious. So, but it's just, <laughs> well, but I think, <laughs> no, no, they, I mean, actually I, the eternal subordination of the sun stuff, uh, was kind of juicy and salacious. Uh, I mean, I don't know. It, it's kind of made its, uh, it's reared its head again a little bit, uh, because, uh, the, the re the second edition of, uh, the Grudem text, uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't know if maybe. I mean, I guess more recently, uh, you're from Texas. I understand, right? So, I mean, I yeah. I assume that you're not going to be, uh, you know, supporting the Saints in the in, in the NFL or anything. <laughs> well, listen, I have been a Cowboys fan my whole life, okay, and I've been through them. With, I I have been through everything with these guys, and I. I do not, you know, I, I, I reached the point this past season where, you know, it's just same old, same old. Uh, I don't know. So I, I'm at the point where I'm like, you know what, guys, I have, uh, I owe you guys nothing. You know, like, <laughs> I'll come back when you start winning games. But I think 2020 was just so, like, busy and so um, stressful in so many respects that, like, you know, people were saying, you know, people were catching up, keep, still keep up with sports. I just lost interest for the most part in sports. The only sport I really kept up with was hockey. And, 
that's just kind of like bled over into this year. I think hockey is about the only thing I'm interested in watching. So I don't even know. I guess I found out the other day the Saints are in the playoffs, and it doesn't surprise me the Cowboys aren't. Um, so, um, you know, at this point, like, hey, whatever. Go Saints, right? Um, may they may they win or something, you know? <laughs> I honestly don't care. <laughs> yes. No, that's funny. Yeah. Well, that's and I, I, I have seen. I had seen on Twitter that you are a big Dallas Stars fan. I grew up playing hockey. Hockey was the game that I played from the time I was five until well, Amen. my brother and I. My brother and I still actually play adult league together uh, here in St. Louis. So, oh, I'm envious. <laughs> uh, so that was, that was it's fun. It's actually it's funny. Uh, it's my game to play. Uh, I love playing it. I don't. I not that I don't like watching it. But I feel less compelled to watch it, I guess, because my whole life I was always like, well, I'd rather be playing. Um, yeah. But I, so I, I actually watch more football than I do hockey, probably, or some, you know, other things. Uh, but, uh, but actually, hockey. Okay, so here's yeah. a little known fact about Tyler Whitman um, for my future biographers. <laughs> I chose <laughs> what college to go to because they had an outdoor hockey rink. Okay, like a roller hockey rink. So I chose to go to Colorado State University because when I visited, they showed me the outdoor hockey rink. And I was like, this is where I'll, I will live. And <laughs> sure enough, like every Saturday, I was out there playing roller hockey. So um, anyway, that was that, that's a window into the kind of wisdom I had as a, an 18-year-old. <laughs> where did you, go? you went to Colorado or something, right? Yeah, Colorado State. Yeah. Colorado State. There you go. I had, yeah, no, I would not have known that. Yeah. So uh, I, I love hockey. Anyway. <laughs> Very good. Well, I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, I have, of course, I have, uh, you know, I had way more questions that we could actually get to. Um, all right. Well, here's, here's a question that uh, we'll, we'll stick. This is a little more autobiographical, a little less about the book, but it's just something that interested me. Well, it actually relates to your book. Uh, so you chose Aquinas and Bart. Um, we've talked a little bit about being Baptist and such here. So mm. I guess, um, you know, I, I can understand from a broadly theological level the import and sort of the monumental nature of Aquinas and Bart. But ma my question, why are there no Southern Baptists uh, that want to write any kind of theology in this, uh, like, I don't know, world beating way. I'm not really sure what to say. Um, that they're just, why are there no Southern Baptist thinkers that you have to contend with, um, as a theologian in the same respect? Um, and how was that as a Southern Baptist attack, uh, tackling these? Because I mean, I went to, uh, you know, like for, for myself, I was, you know, raised Southern Baptist church, but I went to a reformed high school and I loved it when we got to read the confessions and got to read a little bit of Calvin because I was like, Oh, there's, you know, there's, there's kind of a way to think about this a little bit more um, uh, systematically um, and, mm. uh, and in a different way, you know, like, I mean, my joke was always that um, I felt like I was taught to say the prayer and then I learned enough about the Bible to tell other people that they needed to pray a prayer. Um, and, and that, that was kind of how, I mean, to like, that's a way overly simplified and that's not true yeah. of all Southern Baptists. And I really appreciate my upbringing, but that's kind of how it felt. And then, so I really glommed on to like the more systematic theology because I was like, oh, there's, there's something, there's something uh, like deeper that I can read and understand about the coherence of the text. 
but so say, say I don't know, say, say what you will in response to that. Um, just, I thought it was interesting and, and uh, yeah. Okay. Well, I'll say two things about that. I think, uh, first of all, I wish I'd gone to your high school because I went to a, uh, kind of quasi charismatic, like dispensationalist high school for my, my last two years of high school. I, I went to pre, you know, uh, public school before that. And, uh, you know, you can imagine the kind of, uh, kind of crazy stuff that we talked about. <laughs> um, but, uh, we weren't reading the confessions, uh, that's for sure. Um, but, uh, the second thing, uh, so why, you know, as I understand your question, you're asking why are there no, um, seminal Baptist figures that, um, that are, uh, engaged by even other traditions, someone that you can't bypass, someone you have to kind of, um, deal with, you know, um, I don't, I, I, I don't know uh, the full answer to that, but I think w- one thing that does uh, strike me is that, um, you know, the reason there's no John Calvin or Martin Luther or Thomas Aquinas or, uh, or whatever in Baptist circles is because that, that, the, um, that requires institutional um, a, a kind of institutional foundation, right? And, and, and infrastructure. The Baptists just haven't had access to for a long time. You know, for a long time, they weren't, uh, you know, John Gill, I believe, was not allowed to go to Cambridge, right? Um, uh, or Oxford, because he was, he was not an Anglican. So he was like, basically an autodidact, you know, sorts. Um, and even then, it's pretty impressive when you read John Gill's body of doctrinal and practical divinity, um, it's, it's just really good kind of, you know, Protestant scholastic fair. Um, but you know, that's the closest you get to a kind of, you know, scholastic, um, Baptist scholasticism, you know? Um, so that's, that's one aspect of it is it just haven't had the kind of deep institutional structures of, uh, in terms of just a- a education, um, that breed that kind of, um, that kind of work. The, the 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 second element of it, and this is just shooting from the hip, because I'm no, I'll you know, I'd be interested to see what some of my friends who are Baptist historians um, or American historians would say about this. But I think another aspect of it is just that Baptists have less of an appetite for that kind of stuff as a whole. Um, you know, every tradition has the things they're really good at and the things that they're not as good at. You know, Baptists tend to be really good at, um, historically, right, at evangelism and missions. These are the kinds of things that uh, Baptists are really really keen about, right? Um, Well, that, the flip side of that, you know, if that's a kind of, that's at least part of the active life, you know, there can be a a kind of downplaying of the contemplative life. Um, You know, it's illustrated, for instance, like, you know, I remember being in seminary and having a discussion in class, kind of get, you know, start to get into the weeds, like maybe just a little bit. And you'd have somebody raise their hand and be like, well, now I'm just a pastor. And that's how they would kind of preface it, right? As in terms of like, I'm about to derail the conversation away from this intellectual discussion because I'm just a pastor with humble pastor kind of uh, interests. And that would always, oh, that always just annoyed the fire out of me because I'm there thinking, what do you mean you're just a pastor? Like, it's a very high and honorable calling. And it demands, I think, the utmost preparation. And um, I think you should be the one who's leading the charge in these kind of intellectual discussions if you're 
when we there's no such thing as just a pastor. Like that's a very, um, you know what I mean? That's a very, very important role. Like you're supposed to be feeding the sheep, you know? <laughs> um, and so that's why in my own, my own seminary classes, I, you know, I, I, I tell, I teach in the seminary and I, I tell my students, look, uh, there are so many things you cannot learn from me. Okay. I have very little, I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to make you a pastor. I'm not going to be able to feed tons of ministerial wisdom into you. I can teach you the faith, right? I can give you an appetite for, for learning. I can teach you how to read and think and, and articulate yourself well. Um, these are all important components of ministry, but, you know, I try to impress upon people, like, even the whole seminary curriculum isn't going to make you a pastor. Like, God makes you a pastor. God even makes you a theologian. Like, I'm just here to try to, like, help with the theologian part. Um, that said, you know, when they're in my, in, in, in my classes, um, I'm just trying to, um, to get them to take theology seriously. And so I will tell the students in my class who are, you know, interested in going into some kind of music ministry, or who are going to go on the mission field, I tell them, I expect the most from you guys. And they're usually kind of like, what? <laughs> like the music people who are like in this class, is like the last class they're taking before they graduate. And they're like, wait, 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 what? You know, I'm like, yeah, I expect the most from you guys because you're the ones who are going to be writing uh, hymns and stuff, right? Or you're going to be the ones on the mission field dealing with um, really complex discussions about what faithfulness in different cultures and, con and religious contexts looks like. You're the ones who need the greatest acuity with theology. Uh, sure. And to some extent, being a professor, I, I, I can afford to be the dumbest at this stuff, you know, and the dullest. Like you guys are the ones, you know, who are going to be really tested on on some of it. So, um, you know, I, I'm, so I say that to say there's a lot of combating that kind of mindset of theology is this kind of thing that easily gets too heady and too detached from real life, right? And, um, and so I usually spend a good bit of time whenever I can just kind of showing how this stuff does bear practical fruit, right? But it, it, it does so after a long time of, 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 um, of growing roots, you know, and it, so the, the fruits are only going to be as good as the roots. And, uh, I didn't mean to say that it sounds kind of, uh, <laughs> whippy, but, uh, I, I well, people like, look, you're going to be, you have to give people water, right? And so dig a deep well, you know? And so I'll tell people like, you may not understand this discussion we're about to go into about divine immutability. You may not understand how this is going to bear upon your life or whatever. Just trust me that it will. Okay. Dig a deep well, dig in. This is my, might be the only time in your life you have to think intensely about these matters. Just do it. Okay. And trust me. Um, and you know, years down the road, it'll come it'll come in to your counseling or your preaching or whatever, you know? Um, but this is the counsel of God. And so, um, you open your hands and, um, and, 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 and receive it, um, as a counsel of God. So I think I, I had to do a lot of that because a lot of times people just come from yeah churches where it's like, well, be, be careful, you know, like seminary will fill your head with too much, um, theology and, and that's kind of a, can be a bad thing. And, um, so it's not to say that there's an anti-intellectual streak, but there, there, are, there is some of that in some of the some of the uh, churches that um, make up the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, but I think just overall, there's just a, a, a general. I think, um, man, how do I say this? 
I don't think that as Southern Baptists, because that's all I can really say, I don't know much about Baptists more generally, I think we only take theology so seriously. We talk about it a lot, but we don't really take it that seriously very often. Um, so I could say much more about that and probably get myself into all sorts of trouble, but I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I just, I don't know how seriously we take theology. Um, so that's a long-winded answer to why are there no kind of like, um, you know, seminal Baptist theologians that everyone has to deal with. It's a, it's a complex answer. I think the things I've offered are just maybe some of the pieces of that puzzle, but, um, that's a good question. Right. All right. Well, I just, uh, I want to thank, uh, Dr. Whitman, Tyler Whitman for, um, spending, uh, an hour with me this morning. Um, and, um, yeah, uh, I hope wish you the best of luck in the coming semester. And, um, yeah, it was it was good getting to uh, talk with you. And again, the the book uh, is a is a great book. It's very deep. It's very uh, rich. Um, and it, it definitely took me several reads. Uh, I mean, I didn't finish all of it, um, but even the, the parts where I dug in, I, I had to read uh, two and three times. It um, is it is a dense book. Okay. Yeah. So, yes. It's, it's, but it's dense enough that like I think when I went when when I was being examined, like one of the examiners said I had to read the introduction twice because um, he's like I just he's like it, it it's not just not clear it's just that it it hits the ground you know at warp speed and he's like and it uh, and and it's deep so I think even he had to read it kind of slowly it's not. It packs a lot of, I don't know. I think it's just it could have been more more well written and more clearly written. And I think that's evidenced by the fact that even people who have received the book for free to review it, I have read so many reviews where I'm reading that and I'm thinking this person did not understand what I was saying. <laughs> that's on me. So yeah. <laughs> just well, I don't know if I did or didn't understand all of it. And like I said, we didn't get to get to all. We didn't even really tackle all no, the questions funny. that I had. But it was. Uh, it was good for me to exercise my muscles and I'm only teaching languages right now. So I don't get to do, uh, the, the hard thinking, uh, as much as I enjoyed. Um, and you know, one, one of the things that I've been telling, uh, other people is like one of the criticisms that I received from my dissertation was that it was too, uh, historical. Um, and, mm -hmm. and that was meant like in some sense as a positive and others as a negative, my advisor said, before you turn this into a book, you, you know, you need to go back and really think through what does this mean theologically? Like what are, yeah. you know, yeah, you, you've told me where Augustine came from. You You've told me how this fits in his historical situation. You've told me a lot of interesting things, but what does that mean for how God works in the moment of the sermon? Um, and, and and so, you know, so that's, I, I feel like one of the things that I enjoy about the podcast is I get to talk to other people who've done better uh, theological work and I get to learn and grow and and sort of work my muscles a little bit more. So I appreciate it. Well, it's a, it's a joy to, to talk about these things. And I appreciate you. All right. Going, man.